Welcome to the Jason Tiff Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come out and uh, talk some hoops with me and with Vinay. I brought Vinay on. You guys know him from the Lakers Central Podcast. He hosts that podcast with Alex Halling. Um, I hopped on with him and uh, Alex a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, those guys uh, run a great show over there, so make sure you hop over. I'm gonna before we get out of here today. I'll have him. Uh, I'll have Vinay plug all the necessary uh, pages and links for that. Vinay, how you doing, man? I am doing good. Excited. The NBA is back. Looks like we neither of us got any time off, uh, just like the players. But um, you know, le- a lot of cool things to learn from yesterday's games, even though they're just one game sample sizes. But just glad that the league is back. Yeah, me too, man. And and like it's funny because I I would imagine that for most of the guys in the league, they wanted some more time off. But at the same time, like when you love basketball the way that these guys do, or the way that we the way that we do, mm-hmm. once you get back into it, you're kind of just like you just get into the grind and you love it. Like I, I thought, LeBron had an interesting comment after the game last night. He said, "I'm kind of glad this is over now. It felt weird that we had a game, but yeah. now we can just kind of focus on our season." Um, and it was yeah. really, really cool to see all of those guys get their rings. I think it's one of the coolest things in sports because, you know, uh, only one team gets to win and it makes it that much more special. And, and, and it was really, really cool to see everybody, especially to see their families involved. I thought the Lakers absolutely nailed it in a really weird environment. Yeah. I, I was going to say that I, I thought the ring ceremony was really great. Um, I, I would say that, the the family part was a real nice touch, especially considering in the bubble they could never, you know, they, their family wasn't even there for a majority of the time and stuff like that. I thought, you know, there wasn't too many like very like expansive speeches or it, it didn't get too emotional. It's just like the, the right amount of ring ceremony, the right amount of at least from a Laker fan perspective, the right amount of like um, attribution to like um, Kobe and stuff like that. So I thought that was really nice. Uh, it was just a great presentation all the way through. That's what you kind of expect from the Lakers. And, and you know, hats off to Jeannie Buss and, and the rest of that, um, you know, the, the rest of that franchise for doing it the way they did. I like that they talked about the first responders and stuff like that, too. That was really nice because sometimes we forget um, that there is an entire world outside of basketball that's still occurring that we're part of. Um, so I think it's nice that all that sort of stuff happened. Uh, and then we got onto the game, which was very, very different. <laughs> yeah, I, the experience. I, I thought the Lakers nailed it. And I mean, so first of all, uh, as many of us know, defending champions sort of have a history of struggling on ring night. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a lot of emotion. And then I'm a huge believer in the, uh, the motivational advantage in basketball, the team that has more to play for. Mm-hmm. And I think that it takes a lot of mental toughness to overcome that. That does It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen from time to time. And obviously the Lakers mm-hmm. will be at a, at a motivation disadvantage throughout the season, and I'm sure they will overcome it. But o- opening night's a classic example of that because you're always playing a really good team because for TV purposes, they're going to put you against somebody that everybody wants to watch you play against. That team, in all likelihood, had a disappointing playoff loss the previous year. In <laughs> yeah. all likelihood, they just watched you get your rings, and they're extremely frustrated. They're extremely yeah. motivated. They're chomping at the bit. And what do you know? The, the game started, and, and, and the game kind of went as you would expect. The, the Clippers jumped out to a big lead. The mm-hmm. Lakers fought back, but by the time they fought back, they were a little fatigued, and they weren't really yeah. ready to continue to match that effort. And then the Clippers pulled away. Um, but that said, I, I think that there was a lot of really good basketball for us to have interesting 
you know, takeaways from and yeah. uh, the format that you and I settled on for this, which I think will be cool is we're going to give you the three things that we liked the most. Sure. And then we're going to give you guys the three things that we didn't like strictly speaking from the Lakers. And then we'll mm-hmm. shift to the Clippers from there. Um, so I would, the first thing that I liked and you can just let me know if we overlap on this. Sure. There was a lot of pessimism surrounding LeBron uh, physically last night, which was surprising to me because I thought he looked good physically. Yeah. I, I, there were several uh, attacks to the basket where he looked more or less like the same guy. Mm-hmm. He missed a lot of shots at the rim, but it wasn't so much that uh, he wasn't up high enough or that he mm-hmm. wasn't getting enough cele- uh, separation. He was right there at the rim. He was just missing shots because he's more or less rusty. He came out and basically told us that Instagram post where he was doing a workout with his son was the first time he touched a basketball from October 11th Mm -hmm. to that day, which was November 25th, I believe. So a Mm -hmm. month and a half, basically. And then he went right into training camp. So he's going to be rusty. But Mm -hmm. I I thought athletically he looked good. And that's not that long of a gap. So theoretically, I would imagine that he's going to pick it up very quickly. I didn't see anything to be too pessimistic about from LeBron physically. What did you think? Yeah, I, I thought um, everything that LeBron was doing yesterday, I thought athletically he looked fine. It looked like he had a really nice burst uh, in transition. He had a really nice burst in um, even in some of the half-court action. That that first dunk that he got, he that was based off of uh, his guy going to go double Anthony Davis and him like immediately cutting. So like the reaction timing and all that stuff was there. I mean, it, it actually just seemed like he was playing basketball. I, I know he played in the pregames, but it felt like he was just playing basketball for the first time, like live live basketball. Like he had two, he had the finger roll that he missed uh, that was like wide open pretty much, and then he had that he had like a point blank layup. They just like literally just shot over the rim and it went like off the back of the back of that rim. So it's just like when you see stuff like that and you're more versed in LeBron than I am. But like even just from a basketball perspective, watching somebody do that, it reminded me of like somebody who's been stuck in a pandemic for a long time and just taking a break and then just showing up to play pickup basketball and then just, you know, missing basic shots that you would normally if you had a rhythm, you would already know how to do. So uh, physically, I thought he was fine. I thought the rhythm was kind of up and down, depending on uh his first shift versus his second shift. Uh, and it was very reminiscent of the first game they played in the preseason against Phoenix. If you remember, um, if you got a chance to watch it, Anthony Davis, his shooting looked good, but both he and LeBron came out sort of out of rhythm a little bit, kind of figuring out who, who the ball was going to. And plus, you know, they had Dennis Schroeder. So they were trying to figure out um, how they're integrating him into the loop too as well. Their first shift in that game didn't look that great, but that second shift, the defense turned up. Uh, they, I think they were down to Phoenix in that game, and then they wiped away like a 15-point deficit. We saw almost the same exact thing happen yesterday night where they came out a little slow. Our, our stars came out a little slow, and then the second shift, they kind of ramped it up a little bit more. And then, you know, the the second half, like the fact that he didn't even, he, he didn't even break 30 minutes. Like, so I was just like, all right, they're not taking this game very seriously. And I think most sensible fans saw it as this is the, their fifth preseason game more than it is the first game of the regular season. Yeah, and you know, like LeBron, I saw a stat over the offseason where it was either I think it was it was for sure last postseason and then maybe for his entire career now, LeBron had a higher field goal percentage in the paint than Shaquille O'Neal. 
and, and, I, and I, I, I know for sure it was in last postseason, but it may or may not be for his whole playoff career at this point. But it, it, that is an absolutely absurd stat. LeBron, mm-hmm. when he gets to the rim and he gets enough separation to be around the rim, he's just going to make it. That's that, that that is one of his calling cards. And mm-hmm. and last night he was just smoking layups right and left. He was missing uh, everything that. Uh, that he had around the rim, and, and it was never a factor of him shooting over too much length or him. Yeah. There was one play where he got blocked by Zubac as he kind of drove in on the left side. But, like, for the most part, he was getting plenty of separation and he was getting to the rim. He was just smoking lips. And for yeah. anybody who's played any real amount of basketball, especially, like you said, the pandemic example is perfect because I went through this. I was playing – four to five times a week for yeah. you know years leading up to the to the pandemic and you know for for several months there especially at the beginning I, w- I was not playing at all and then I'd get invited to some run somewhere and I'd, yeah. I'd go play and it's like it's not like I can't play anymore it's just yeah. like the ball feels a little weird in your hand and you're, you're yeah. every little like gather and dribble and finish and everything just kind of feels funky and that just kind of goes away over time you just mm-hmm. have to kind of build your rhythm back mm-hmm. and again the the this isn't like are we wondering whether or not LeBron can regain his 2018 playoff form like we right. talked about last postseason we're saying can he be the same guy he was two months ago which right exactly I'm absolutely certain he can be so that if the reason why I put that down is one of the things that I liked was because I thought physically he looked great that tr- Duncan transition he had that was just ridiculous when he did that I was like whoa I was not expecting that in game yeah. one um, I, I would say that as it relates just to that topic in itself, like you have to separate LeBron's finishing being out of rhythm and then actually just look at how he looked just getting to the rim. I thought mm-hmm. he was good getting to the rim. He had a little spin in a phone booth on, on Zubak. Like, like th- that wasn't as athletic as he probably normally would make that move. Cause he's, he's a little bit more exaggerated when he makes that spin move, but it looked good. So like the fact that he was getting to the rim is probably a good sign of more than anything. Um, uh, the finishing will correct itself as the season goes on. I 100% agree. The, the, the thing to watch there is the separation he's getting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what are the fir- what's the first thing you have on your list of things that you liked? Okay, so the thing that I liked uh, was Anthony Davis's mid-range shooting. Uh, yesterday, he didn't take too many shots in the paint. Uh, that's you know probably by design because he didn't want to go in game one to start you know wrestling around. I think at the very beginning of the game, he had a possession where he had Ibaka on him. And he faced him up and he used a, a slight dribble fake, uh, not a, like a jab step fake uh, towards the middle of the um, towards the middle of the court. And mm-hmm. uh, he got Ibaka to sw- open up his hips to the base, open the open the baseline up by switching his hips. And he immediately attacked him with his left hand and he got a dunk out of it. The rest of the stuff was all uh, jump shots uh, that he was making. It looked really good uh, coming out of the, his hands. The ones where he wasn't fading away, he was kind of standing straight up. Uh, when he was releasing, um, that looked really good. It is a one-game sample size, but it's nice to see that it still continued to translate over. Him taking those jumpers over Zubak was also impressive because Zubak was supposed to be the guy who had enough length and closeout uh, ability to affect that shot or at least the trajectory of that shot. So I'm not a jump shot expert or or shooting expert, um, but I, I would assume that it was good that he was making those in rhythm and it looked like he wasn't using too many different moves to get himself out of rhythm. He was taking them, you know, face up and, and it looked good in general. Yeah. So I, I actually think it's really interesting that you brought this up because it's going to be something that's going to be very interesting to follow with all of the players from the mm-hmm. bubble. Because I do think that there is some truth to the fact that conditions in the bubble kind of lent themselves to the mm-hmm. player shooting 
better than they normally would. Mm-hmm. That said, one of the most important aspects of jump shooting is confidence. And I talked with you a lot about this the first time you and I did a podcast together when we talked about Anthony Davis shooting mid-range well in the bubble. And I mentioned that like th- there's a pathway to adding a skill to your game. Mm-hmm. You, you work on it by yourself to the point where you feel like you have it mastered. Mm-hmm. Then you start trying it in pickup or in practice, if for the case of an NBA player. And then you start trying it in games. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's a barrier between that shot working so well when you're not being watched on TV and then it's suddenly being something you feel confident taking with the world watching. And, and what's interesting to me is uh, there's been all this question about whether or not Anthony Davis's jump shooting would translate from the bubble to the regular season in the, in the real world. And the truth is, is it looks like it may strictly on the strength of his, his confidence. That ability has always been there. His form is great. He to to the point about him being contested. Him and KD have this weird thing where, like, if a hand is up, it just doesn't bother. It doesn't them. matter, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they they shoot up, they don't shoot out. They have really really smooth releases, and they shoot so high that it just doesn't bother them. So mm-hmm. from that standpoint, like the way that I look at it, uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see with Jamal Murray too, mm-hmm. a player who shot really really well in the bubble who had issues being kind of hot and cold in the playoffs before last season, if the confidence boost from being that guy who was as good as he was, who dropped 40 on Kawhi in a game seven, who did all of those things, just simply allows him to be a more confident jump shooter for the rest of his career, and it leads to him making shots. And I think, I think that's what it was. The ability was always there with AD. The inconsistency was born out of just lack of reps as he was sure. learning to be a more – versatile aggressive mid-range score and now it's kind of just sort of coming together and and the bottom line is that's something to be super 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 excited about for the lakers because that's what makes him a top five player other than that he's just kind of you know go bear with a little bit more offensive versatility but his 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 ability to be elite in that regard is what Mm -hmm. vaults him up into that you know tier one tier two star level yeah, I mean, it, it turns him it being it puts him into that elite category of three tier scores, which is the very top of the top when it comes to like the best scores in the league. And typically, you wouldn't think of Anthony Davis. You wouldn't if the first thing I, I said, well, what's a, what's Anthony Davis's best quality? Usually, the first thing you say is, oh, he's he's a defensive player of the year candidate, right? You wouldn't. The first thing you wouldn't say is it like he's a you know three tier elite score. That's not the first thing you would say. And um, that still may be true now, but now he can add that if it's consistent and it remains consistent through the season. Um, you can add that. And that when you combine those two things, defensive player of the year and three-tier score, that's when you start getting into, wow, this guy's an MVP level uh, caliber player. Um, so it, it's a good sign for him. And I hope he continues to, I, I wonder if winning a championship took the pressure off of playing the game of basketball for him now. Um, and so now he just gets to play basketball and he doesn't have to worry about uh, chasing a championship anymore. So, I wonder if there's a level of confidence he gets from that. So, and it's to your point. I think you're absolutely right onto something there. I, without a doubt. I think like one of the most common things that happens the first time a team wins a title is they come back super, super confident the next year. Okay. The, the, that's what's so beautiful about the way Rob Palinka did this is he, he kept the core guys who are going to feed off of the confidence of winning the championship. And then he brought in enough new blood that there's not going to be stagnation and guys who don't have any sort of motivation. Right, right. So uh, the second thing that I put on my list of things that I liked was Montrez Harrell's offensive rebounding. Yeah. So what I loved about the way that they used Montrez last night 
is he did have a couple of isolation plays, but it was mm-hmm. not it, it, the vast majority of his offense came playing off of the other players on the floor. Mm-hmm. And, and he was an absolute beast on the offensive glass, which is literally like stealing points. And it's one of the most important things to factor in when you're talking about him on the defensive end, because I, I kind of just threw off, threw out most of what I saw defensively from the Lakers last night. Cause I didn't think their effort was super good on yeah. that. end. Um, I agree. But like it, it, it's the verdict is still out as to what kind of defensive player Montrez can be on this team. Mm-hmm. However, if he's going to get four offensive rebound putbacks every single game, that's just war- that just cancels yeah. out a lot of any any defensive mistakes he brings to the table. Those are empty possessions for the Lakers mm-hmm. that they're coming back on defense with two points. And that, that's what's actually happening on those plays. And I thought, I thought you, I, I thought it invigorated the team. I thought mm-hmm. it brought a lot of energy. And you could tell, like you could tell, LeBron and AD were feeding off of it. They were all feeding off of it. He brought a lot of energy last night, and I was really, really pleased with the way he fit in offensively. Yeah, and and you know, one of the benefits of being a good offensive rebounder or being able to put pressure on the offensive boards like that is it stops the the opposing team from breaking out in the transition. They have exactly. to send an extra guy to help on. Uh, to help with the defensive rebounding and stuff like that. And that, that in itself is, is a pretty awesome thing. Even the Clippers themselves, they, they utilize that offensive uh, rebounding prowess with Zubak. Every time he grabs an offensive rebound, it causes problems for the defense because they got to send more guys back to help out. Um, and Lakers actually ran into that situation themselves a little bit. Uh, when Zubak had a couple, I wouldn't say he got like one or two offensive rebounds for putbacks or something like that. Um, and so, there, the fact that we have one, we only need one guy to put that kind of pressure on on the offensive board, uh, offensive class is is great because if you flank them with four guys, we'll make sure that they get back in transition and they're good communicators and they pick stuff up. You have the luxury of doing stuff like that and telling Montrez, giving him the green light, say go go ahead and attack the offensive glass however you want. So all the parts kind of fitting together with that situation. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, having a having a one man offensive rebounding force allows you to take the risk and not sacrifice your transition defense. I think mm-hmm. I think uh, I think it's a really good fit. So, what do you have as your second thing that you liked? Okay, so uh, the second thing that I have is um, Montrez's partner in crime last night for some of those sets, uh, Dennis Schroeder. Um, yesterday was the first game where we saw outside of the very first preseason game where Dennis Schroeder ran a lot of pick and roll. Uh, he ran it with Montrez. He ran a little bit of, I think he ran a couple possessions with uh, Marcus Gasol. And then he actually ran some with Anthony Davis. Uh, at the very beginning of the game, he had a little bit of an issue with the entry passes uh, to Anthony Davis. He was throwing them at his feet and stuff like that. Um, and that clearly gets fixed once he watches tape and realizes where Anthony Davis likes to catch the ball and stuff like that. So I think that'll get correct. I'm not too worried about it. But um, part of the... Part of that comeback in the second quarter that erased that 22-point deficit was him just getting loose as a scorer. And when I watched him in the very first preseason game, uh, it seemed like he was trying to be a facilitator for everybody else. And that's usually what you expect to happen to your debut with your new team. You're being watched on national television, even though it's a preseason game. You want to fit in. And uh, I think um, that's all fine and dandy, but we brought him on board because we need him to score. And we want him to score and... The Lakers, if anything, are a team that has a lot of role players that know how to play around volume scores. So if he's scoring, the rest, everything else will fall into place. Caruso, Kuzma, Taylor Horton Tucker, everybody else will fall into place. Markeith Morris. So that's what we needed from him. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Yesterday was only one game, but we can already see what the difference is when we have a bench that can score versus a bench that could not score at all last season. And so it was nice. It was funny. Um, uh, 
But it was also nice to see that our bench could battle back against another team's bench and take a lead. And LeBron and Anthony Davis were staggered in and out for as part of those lineups too as well. But I thought there was a stretch in the game where Schroeder and Montrez were scoring like practically every every possession. And so the Lakers didn't even have to look at Anthony Davis. And they just put Anthony Davis on Kawhi. And they're like, just play defense and we'll take care of the offense. And that is, I would say, awesome. The -hmm. more that they can do that, the more that like Anthony Davis being on the court, but just having to only play defense is a boon for the Lakers. That's how Vogel can, and and it's a, it's an advantage the Lakers can utilize or exploit moving forward. um, If they can keep that scoring clip up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think uh, uh, I agree with you hundred percent in the sense that the bench uh, is going to be something that can carry the Lakers early in the year as Mm -hmm. the lethargy from their stars and their starters uh, can get them in some holes early in games. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about earlier, just having that influx of people who don't have any reason to be lethargic and don't have any reason to, <laughs> yeah. to, to be, you know, complacent. Those are the guys that can fight back and get and get the Lakers back into these games. And then, honestly, just the competitive nature of LeBron and AD and KCP and guys like these, they're champions. They're not going to sit there yeah. and let their bench carry them. Inevitably, they will feed off of that mm-hmm. and, find, and find a way to try to match their intensity. Um, so this is actually good because I actually put Schroeder down as one of the things that I didn't like, uh, not Schroeder himself, but I did think that he was just a tad bit over aggressive, mm-hmm. uh, to be clear all to the good stuff. I noticed with Schroeder instant chemistry with Montrez mm-hmm. that, 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 that is, that goes to show you how gifted he is as a natural pick and roll playmaker. Um, and then he is absolutely, I was pleased with what he brings to the table in the sense that I do think there will be a scenario where this works really, really well for the Lakers, having Schroeder shot out of a cannon and being very aggressive from time to time. Mm -hmm. That, that said, um, I did think that there were some stretches, particularly in the third quarter where he took some shots that were a little bit outside of the flow of the offense that kept things outside of, uh, of LeBron and Anthony Davis and what they can bring to the table offensively. What I mean by that is that something that I harped on a lot last year, which is that uh, I'm a big believer in continuing to feed your top two players mm-hmm. because it allows them to gain a rhythm, which will inevitably help you over the course of the game. That doesn't mean Dennis Schroeder doesn't shoot. Doesn't mean that Dennis Schroeder doesn't, you know, uh, 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 you know, you don't want him playing inhibited. Mm-hmm. But this is where it comes. This is where him being in the starting lineup becomes a problem because I loved the way that Brooklyn used Karis LeVert yesterday. I don't know if you caught that game, yeah. but when Karis LeVert checked in to start the second quarter, they they just shot him out of a cannon, and mm-hmm. he just started going to work. And he was generating all sorts of offense. He, t- I think, he took seven shots in his first nine minutes and made yeah. like four of them or five of them. And he was just, he was all over the place, and it was a huge net positive because early in the game they just ran everything through KD and Kyrie, mm-hmm. and then when you know during a, during the stretch of the game when uh, I think they either both of them were out or uh, or KD was on the floor, but he had been used a lot and he was being a little more passive, kind of resting in the flow of the game. Mm-hmm. They just shot Karis LeVert out of a cannon, and he just was super aggressive. and And that's what I that's what I'd like to see, and this is what I put down as one of the things I, that I didn't like. I just would like to see the Lakers focus Dennis Schroeder's aggression through specific points in the game mm-hmm. when it makes a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of this is Anthony Davis's fault because he was so passive at times as a result of the double teams that, uh, that it kind of forced someone else on the floor to try to create something and sure. Schroeder would be more aggressive. But I, I think there's a sweet spot because, you know, he was, I think he was five of 15 last night. 
Mm-hmm. And he was five of 15, but he played well. I really do think he played well. He, he nearly had a triple double. He had eight assists and he's not notoriously a high assist guy. And one of the reasons why is I thought he just had a few bad shots in the game that if he takes those out and, and kind of plays like a little bit more under control, it might impact this team a little bit better, but I'm, I'm really picking nits here because he was good last night. I, I don't want to overplay that, but or underplay that, but I just, yeah, like the, I, I see, I really liked what I saw, but I think they can focus his aggression in different parts of the game a little better. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's probably something that is going to happen over the course of time. I, I, my entire logic, or at least my, my approach to what I think the first 10 games of the season are probably going to be is um, Vogel just wants to get reps up with different lineups um, and get these guys a little bit used to it. Like, even if you're best friends with, you know, like if you go and play rec ball and you're, unless you're like absolutely best friends with the other four guys that you've played with and you guys have played hundreds and hundreds of games together, it's really hard. Even if you know the person and you've seen how they play, it still takes a certain amount of reps to kind of get real comfortable with how each other, uh, other plays. I want to say that maybe his overaggression also probably came from the fact that the Lakers were down. And so he was just trying to change the, change the speed of the game and stuff like that. Um, he did definitely get himself stuck in a few bad spots like overdriving or, or getting a little bit too deep without having like a real good outlet pass and stuff like that to his teammates. But I think that's something that he'll learn that he doesn't have to rush stuff and he can play within the feel of the offense and whatnot. Um, but I think your stuff is valid. I think I, I saw that on the timeline as well. Most, most Laker fans were pretty happy with what Schroeder was doing. They were just a little uh, concerned about his, you know, some of it was his shot selection and some of it was just being a little overzealous uh, with sort of how his activity on, on the ball. And the bottom line is, is they're going to need him to be super aggressive. It's mm-hmm. just about figuring out when, and you make a great point. Like it's just about learning when, which mm-hmm. you can't just, you can't like scheme that it's so, like you can to the, to with your lineups to a certain extent by just having him come off the bench, which it doesn't appear they're going to do. But the, the bottom line is over time and, and it, through playing experience, all of these guys will learn how to play off of each other better. Um, so the third thing that I liked was the defense in the second quarter. Oh, yeah. So when the Lakers got slapped in the face to start the game, their competitive nature kicked in, and they did something that I think is a, is a big landmark for this team and has been throughout, their, the, uh, throughout the LeBron and AD experience. When they lock in defensively, teams just can't score. This was a Clipper offense that was humming on all, cin- all cylinders yesterday. Um, uh, and they held them to 17 in the second quarter, much better ball pressure. They made Kawhi feel uncomfortable. Kawhi missed a lot of shots in this stretch. They did a good job of getting into his body so that when he was shooting shots, he was always shooting off balance. He w- Kawhi wasn't bumping people off. People were bumping Kawhi off. Yep. Uh, Marcus All had a good stretch during this time where he was protecting the rim well. This was before uh, uh, he played limited minutes because of foul trouble. But yep. uh, I really, really liked what I saw from the Lakers' defense in the second quarter. As bad as they were for the game, that was enough for me to see to feel optimistic that they can still hit that peak when they need to to try to pull games out. Yeah, that was so that quarter overall. I'll just give you some of the I, plus minus is a little tricky of a, of a data point to use, but it's okay if you use it within the course of like a single run to understand the contributions, right? So in that in that um, for the minute distribution wise, if we look at that second quarter, we got eight minutes of Caruso who went plus eight. We got eight minutes of Markeith Morris who went plus nine. Uh, Montrez seven minutes, almost eight minutes. He went plus ten. Uh, Schroeder played three minutes and went plus ten. Uh, LeBron and AD both went eight minutes, six minutes respectively, plus twelve, plus fourteen, uh, and even uh, 
everybody's favorite whooping boy, Kyle Kuzma, went uh, six, a little over six and a half minutes, and he went plus seven. So that's that's a testament of just that the entire energy shift, like you mentioned, of that second uh, that second shift, that lineup in the second quarter, was completely different. It wasn't just one guy or a specific lineup group. It's everybody came and said, "All right, like f this, we're not going down by like twenty points and and, and just laying down." Uh, and and defensive wise, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Clippers shot seven of twenty five uh, in that quarter. Kawhi took seven shots, went two of seven. Uh, the next best shooter was. Paul George, at, and he went two for five, and then Lou Williams, who went two for three. Everybody else pretty much missed every single shot attempt that they took. So that's that's pretty good. Um, they did. The big difference is the Lakers didn't foul. They only gave up two free throws in that quarter, and that's something that Frank Vogel mentioned at the beginning. The Clippers are a team that is very, very good at drawing fouls. Um, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are probably the best at drawing fouls. They, I think last year they were like in like the 90-somethingth percentile of drawing fouls. Um, when they went, yeah, in the league and stuff like that. And um, obviously the way those calls that they get in the regular season, they change. Like I, I saw a lot of Laker fans saying, man, Paul George gets all kinds of fouls. And then I think Kawhi, like he yelled for an N one and the ref like gave him a really late con- uh, continuation on that. But like we, we've done this exercise before. They don't get those calls in the, in, in uh, the playoffs. That's what kind of throws them out of rhythm and why, why they have collapses. Well, not Kawhi so much, definitely Paul George, but not Kawhi as much, but mm-hmm. you're at, to your original point. Lakers offense came out really great. They went 10 of 22. They took nine threes. Um, they only made three of them, but look at the free throw advantage. They had 14 free throws in the second quarter. So when you see a huge free throw advantage like that, the first thing you're thinking about is, well, how, how often were they going to the rim? And that was really what the Testament of the second quarter was. Um, in the first quarter, the Lakers settled for a lot of jump shots as the guys kind of were warming up their legs and warming, getting a, a lather on. And in the second, second quarter, the Lakers were like, all right, let's lock in on defense and let's attack, let's attack the rim. And that's what they did. And a lot of these shots came from attacking the rim. Um, that's the Lakers' identity. Their philosophy has always been put pressure on the rim as much as possible. And that was a winning formula. We saw that with even the Heat. The Heat, as much as people talk about Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson shooting threes, it's the fact that they can get to the rim. Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, um, even Dunn, uh, Dragic, because they're willing to attack the rim repeatedly over and over again, it, it opens up the rest of your offense. Those are high percent shots. So um, I was really glad with what I saw in that energy. It's it's I think somebody in your um, in the chat mentioned that it's very reminiscent of the, of the second quarter against the Suns. Like that second shift, once they're all warmed up, now this is the Laker team that you got to be concerned about. And it's and just they good. Have to, they have to match the energy of the bench. It's like it's the yeah. it's the main guys come because the main run. They, they would think it was. 40 to 31 or it was like 50 to 41 it was a 10 point game or something with just yeah. a couple minutes left in the first half and they closed it to two with a run with the starters because yeah. literally you can't just sit there and watch the bench guys carry you and not yeah. get a little annoyed that you're not a better a bigger part of what's happening and yeah. then that's how they fought back yeah and it's good that the the team the players on the team even the stars on the team understand the accountability that comes with when your teammates are putting in 100 percent. so mm. it was it was good to see I mean, we only really played one quarter of really quality defense. If we had played two quarters or maybe even three quarters of defense, this could have been a blowout if they had mm-hmm. played really quality defense. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it was really, really good to see. So what was your third thing that you liked? Uh, so th- the third thing that I liked was just <laughs> – it, it's actually not even think The Lakers re- made it out of the first game relatively unscathed. <laughs> they, they, nobody, nobody had any serious injuries like – the thing I'm like always super worried about now, especially with like the Achilles tears and all these things that are happening, it's just like any one play can 
can end up hurting somebody. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's like the number one thing. That's probably going to be a constant theme for me. Like, did we make it out of this game unscathed? Um, LeBron tweaked his ankle trying to help on Zubak. Uh, and he looked like he was okay. KCP looks like he got a Charlie horse cause he got screened by Zubak also. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he was fine also. So like every time I see somebody go down, Anthony Davis hit the floor. I want to say a couple times, but now I'm almost positive that he's doing that on purpose because he doesn't want to land on his feet and risk turning his ankle. If there's somebody that happens to be underneath him. So he deliberately falls on the ground. So he walked away relatively unscathed too. So, um, that was my third favorite thing to see that even with all the little nicks and bruises that they got, uh, during the course of the game, nothing was serious. And, um, you know, they, they, they stayed healthy, um, in a, what was a chippy game at one point, I would say. Yeah, for sure. And, and they get two, they get two days off leading mm-hmm. into the next one. Um, a Christmas day, are they at home? I'm just double checking right now. I believe so. Yeah. I think it's home, yeah, home for the Mavericks. So, so they, they're they're No one has to travel. They get two full days. LeBron, plenty of time for him to get his ankle, right? It should be, it should be perfect. Um, okay. So the first thing that I didn't like, uh, other than the one that I already mentioned, which was Schroeder's over aggressive, over aggressiveness, which we already discussed. Um, I really didn't like, and this is something that goes beyond just last night. It goes into the preseason. I really don't like the way they're using Marcus Saul while they're isolating uh, Anthony Davis, either in face up, face ups or post ups. If you look at my Twitter feed, I've talked about this a couple times over the last week. Um, it just seems kind of uh, so. At least with with Dwight Howard and with and with uh, Javale McGee, when they would sit in the dunker spot and help would come, you could kind of float something up towards the rim and they could dunk it. Now Anthony Davis isn't really a gifted enough passer to take advantage of that, but mm-hmm. at least when LeBron was driving to the basket, that was an option and. And it made some sense for them to be there. But with Marcus Saul, he's not an above the rim threat. And Anthony Davis isn't, a, isn't really that great as a wraparound passer, drop off passer around yeah. the rim. Uh, he, he makes simple passes, but he struggles with some of the more complicated passes. And so it doesn't make any sense to me to have Marcus Saul run to the dunker spot every single time Anthony Davis isolates. It just yeah. is putting him in a position or he's going to have to fade away or shoot some sort of jump shot that is uh, over the top of the defense rather than going through the defense. And the best example of it is that Serge Ibaka one that he, where he dunked, uh, where he drove past him and dunked, because that's, that's why you want to clear the paint for Anthony Davis. Yeah. You clear the paint for Anthony Davis. He's got such a physical advantage. He's going to go around the guy most of the time. And, and if you have Marcus all at the top of the key, then the person who's going to be helping, because it's not like they're not going to help. There's still going to be right. people in the lane. Right. But then the person who's helping is probably going to help from the short corner, in which case it's probably going to be a guard, which means that person's not going to be able to contest Anthony Davis at the rim. He's just going to dunk on him. And by the time he gets over, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it just seems strategically inept to have Marcus all wasted in the dunker spot rather than have him. And that doesn't mean he has to play at the three-point line all the time. It just means that, you know, when in those specific scenarios where you're trying to get Anthony Davis going in isolation, it makes more sense to have him out front. I like the idea of using him as the post-entry guy because Marcus he has a really quick release and he's such a big target that if you have him one pass away and you have him throw the entry pass to Anthony Davis, if the double team comes right away, Marcus all can tee up wide open threes, you know, with an easy, like a, and that's a read that Anthony Davis can make very, very easily. Uh, and plus the guy who's guarding Marcus all probably isn't going to close out super fast. He's a little slower body who's charging at Anthony Davis. It's just something that I'd like to see them figure out a way to better use Marcus all 
during Anthony Davis's isolations and post-ups. Yeah. So I, I thought that Mark being a good passer and being a good post-entry passer. So I, I, I agree with your sentiment. I don't think he should be standing in the dunker spot. I would have thought that maybe they would have put him in the corner on the opposite side at the very worst to at least have, you know, if they want to string the ball all the way back around to him. Um, uh, I would assume the only reason why that happened, it wasn't by design. I think maybe Mark just thought that he had a mismatch in terms of size because they put Ibaka was his defensive matchup, but Ibaka went to go guard Anthony Davis, which makes me think either Batum or Kawhi Leonard or something like that was on Marcus Soul. So I think he just went there to try and help, uh, you know, possibly get an offensive rebound or something like mm-hmm. that. So I don't, I don't know if it was by design, but ideally you don't want him in that spot because he did it a couple times against the Suns and the Clippers. Okay. Okay, or not uh, the Clippers because the AD and LeBron didn't play, but there was a couple plays against the Clip, uh, the Suns that I actually put on my Twitter feed. Similar thing where he just his first instinct when he's running down the floor and they're doing quick isolations is to run to the dunker spot. Yeah, which- yeah, okay, okay, then that's fair. Um, yeah, so if it, if he's if he's doing that, then I maybe on film they'll say, hey, don't run here, just run to this spot instead, or just stop right here. Um, so it, that that's definitely a, a good thing. I, I agree with you. I, I would have thought that they would use him as the post entry guy um, because it actually puts the defensive guy in sort of a tough position to decide not not whether he's going to close out on uh, Marcus Ole, but like it, for a big man, a person who plays a power forward center position, like to decide: do I go and help with the rebound to secure the rebound in case this guy misses? Do I go to help double? Do I do this? Do I do that? Or do I worry about this guy shooting a three? Like those sort of things. And Mark being such a high IQ guy it seems like he would be a really good option to be the post-entry passer for those isolations. Um, but we'll, we'll see, you know, and the thing is that if that double comes, AD can send that back out. And Mike is a super, super IQ guy. He knows exactly which, where the advantage is uh, on that pass. If Lakers set up a design back cut or something like that, or whatever it may be. So he's the perfect um, guy to make that first pass out of the yeah, kick. Yeah, exactly. And he's a quick passer too. He doesn't waste time making that read. Um, I, I think a while back I posted a video about like, how he actually starts looking in the direction of where the pass is going to go before he even catches the ball in his hand. Like it, it's pretty cool stuff that he does. Um, so they may start doing that. They may try him out as a post-entry passer when it comes to that. But I think, I think that's fair. He's better utilized either in the corner of those, of those sets or at the top of the key of those mm-hmm. sets, as opposed to in the dunker spot. Mm-hmm. I agree. So what was the first thing that you didn't like? Okay, uh, so th- for this one, um, our fan favorite from last season, uh, Alex Caruso, uh, he had sort he had a good defensive game, but he had uh, what I want to say is a, a rough offensive game, and that may also be because he had that hip injury, didn't get as many reps and stuff like that. The Lakers deployed um, Caruso and Taylor Horton, Horton Tucker at the same time, which I was excited for because I actually think those two guys can definitely play together. The only problem was I think their responsibilities were flipped. I think they use uh, Alex. I don't know if it was by design or if it's just what happened. And Taylor is just being, you know, a good teammate and letting his teammate like kind of run the show. Um, the pick and roll stuff has been uh, uh, Caruso's offense out of the pick and roll stuff has always been a little shaky. Uh, it hasn't been great. It's part of the reason why he couldn't take minutes away from Rondo last season uh, because he was having trouble with it. And it's just one game, but he was having trouble with it last night too as well. Um, not mishandling the ball, but, you know, like just having struggling with the, with the floater, um, struggling with just kind of making reads, good passes. He had two, I want to say he had two passes that just pretty much went straight out of bounds because of the way he threw the pass. Um, that can be corrected with just some more reps. Um, or it could just be something that requires uh, a little bit more attention. But, um, the only thing I didn't like is I thought we saw really, really good action out of Taylor Horton Tucker during the preseason that I'm kind of surprised that he didn't get those reps. And, 
I don't think it's as big of a deal right now because I think maybe what's happening is Vogel wants to give Caruso the chance to for everybody on the team to openly see, hey, look, maybe this is just not the best way to use him. And Vogel seems like the kind of guy who doesn't just do it without telling his players. He lets them try it out, and when it doesn't work, then he'll switch to responsibility. So I wouldn't be surprised if they run that tandem more and more, if, if, that's, a, if that's a thing that the Lakers try to do, um, that those responsibilities flip. And Caruso is still a fantastic defender. He had some really good, fantastic defenses last uh, defensive possessions last night. And I think that's really the best way to use him. He's, he's much better in transition as an off-the-ball cutter, a guy who just kind of is like the wild card and just kind of does stuff because of his natural prowess. And Taylor Horn Tucker, at least from what we've seen in the preseason game so far, has a very, very good nose for the rim uh, and getting to the rim with a live dribble. And um, I'd like to see him get that opportunity at some point and see how Alex functions off the ball with him um, in that role. Yeah, I 100 percent agree with you. If, if, as long as as long as Talon Horton Tucker is even half the guy that he was in the preseason, and as long as uh, Dennis Schroeder is on this roster, there's no longer any reason for Alex Crusoe to run any of the offense. Yeah. to be honest with you, and and you know, look, the reality is, is Alex Crusoe is a specialist. He was a specialist last year, and and that's what he projects to be in the NBA. He's he's so far from being a a you know a a competent you know, NBA ball handler that he, if that comes at some point in his career, it's going to be at some point in the pr- probably distant future at this point. Mm-hmm. But that said, I think he's an all defense level defender. I'm not, I, the, the most important thing is finding a way to get him less involved with the ball in his hands on offense, but keeping him in the rotation and keeping him involved with this team night in and night out, because he is kind of, for lack of a better term, he's kind of their heart and soul. He's yeah. there. He's the guy that uh, that fires everybody else up with his defensive sequences. He's like kind of a barometer for that team, especially in the grind of the regular season. And so, my hope is that they find a way to balance that so that Alex Caruso stays involved in the rotation yeah. while they kind of take ball handling duties away from him. So, um, the second thing that I didn't like, uh, or I should say, the last thing that I didn't like. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't. I don't have any. I don't have anything else that I didn't like. So this will be really this will be, uh, an optimist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I continue to be frustrated with the way that Anthony Davis handles double teams, and I uh, I'm hoping over the course of the season that LeBron gives me some good counter examples. He hasn't had too many post touches so far in preseason or in the uh, or last night. But you know, I talk a lot about how. Anytime a, t- uh, in, anytime a defense double teams, they're, they're putting themselves in a precarious position. They're, they're putting themselves in a position where the other guys are playing three on four, and if the offensive players have any idea how to adequately space themselves, there's really no way to guard NBA players like that. <laughs> but for whatever reason, Anthony Davis is so uncomfortable under that blitzing double team that his first instinct is to find the nearest outlet guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the nearest guy who's going to sprint somewhere towards where his face is, is right. his field division is yeah, and, and just throw a really simple pass just to get, get rid of the ball. And then, and then he'll just take himself out of the play at that point. Cause he's decided, okay, I tried to post up. They're just going to double team me. Let me get rid of it. Yeah. And, and, and there were a lot of examples last night and I put, I, I put a couple of them on my Twitter feed, but the, the, of him panicking, and missing a clear open read somewhere else on the floor yeah. to either turn the ball over or to throw it to somebody who wasn't a great option. There was one where LeBron actually got a dunk as he kind of started cutting. But but Anthony Davis's read was to give the ball to a player 30 feet from the basket mm-hmm. rather than just kind of holding 
waiting. And LeBron is so good at this. He, he will hold the ball strong with two hands and he'll turn and pivot and he'll keep the defender on his back as best as he can and he'll wait to see what develops and then he'll make a read. And it usually ends in either a wide open three or a dunk. Yeah. And that's, what the, that, that's that thing with Anthony Davis. He's still, I still think he's the fourth, third or fourth best player in the league. I still think he's unbelievably incredible. His, his mid-range progression is such a great sign for Laker fans. But that's something I'm going to be harping on a lot this year because I really think it's the thing that separates him from being the guy who can be the best player in the league. Yeah, I, I think that we, I, a couple times that we've had this conversation, the biggest hole in probably Anthony Davis's game up until that mid-range shooting kind of kicked in um, was literally just his ability to read defenses and that's something uh, that's something that I was hoping that LeBron and, and the, the coaching staff would help him figure out to some degree. I think like Lionel Hollins and now Gasol and Lionel Hollins, like they'll probably help Anthony Davis with that sort of aspect because Gasol is a really good post passer, high, mid or low post, whatever it may be. Um, that's been like the difference between him being like a regularly triple double kind of guy. Like he has all the tools to be like a guy who could average a triple double all season off the strength of him scoring, drawing a double team, and then just setting up his teammates. And I think that's the like last thing to making him practically unguardable. Um, mm-hmm. But so I agree with your, um, with, with why you didn't like that. Uh, I just think that when I think about like other elite tier players, like when we think of Harden and stuff like that, like they kind of do the same thing. Like when they get blitzed, they give it up and then they're like, okay, well, now, now this, now this possession is not my, my, not my fault. If anything bad happens, I think mm-hmm. it's a weird thing that tends to happen with guys um and so Harden and the issue is more pronounced because they run an offense specifically tailored to his strengths and then he dips out of possessions after he gets double teamed uh and doesn't participate um Anthony Davis is a big guy you can't really do that you have to always be participating if you're that big uh but I hope as the season progresses um and maybe if they make that adjustment with the post-entry passes and they bring a soul over to his side so now he has a wider uh field of vision and a wider angle behind him he'll feel a little bit more comfortable making some of those passes yeah so uh for the record i'm holding him to a very high standard yeah i I understand (laughs) that like it that's why i was trying to clarify that stuff there at the end i'm not trying to say that because i love watching anthony davis play i got into a discussion with somebody last night um about you know kind of the differences between him and kd and it's important to remember that anthony davis just put on one of the most amazing defensive playoff runs i've seen in my life watching basketball and, and it kind of culminated in that game six where he, because he was able to play off of Bam, he just completely shut down the Miami offense to the point where they looked like they had no idea what to do with themselves. And, and so I'm not, I, I'm holding him to a very high standard. It was just something I noticed during the game last mm-hmm. night. And it's, and, and it is a clear scheming thing. If you throw hard doubles at Anthony Davis, he's going to get rid of the ball. Mm-hmm. And chances are you can get him to kind of take a passive role in the game. If you get him to do that a few times. And so it's just some, it's just something to keep an eye on. Um, so real quickly, because I know you only have about ten more minutes. Um, a couple of really quick notes that I that I liked about the Clippers. Uh, there was a lot of talk about how they implemented the triangle offense. I thought that was really interesting because I thought it gave them some order that they didn't really have last mm-hmm. year. Uh, kind of a purpose to everything that they were doing on the floor. Uh, and I, I really I really do think that. And it's, it's so allegedly Kawhi is the one who pushed for it. And I really do think that that made a lot of sense. Um, I, I will say, I will ahead. say, I didn't see them run any triangle offense. It seemed like a lot of their offense was just five out, and they let uh, 
and and of course it's a long season they may institute it you know they may, it's it's a learning triangle office is one of the most difficult offices to learn from everything i read about it mm-hmm. um it seemed like last night was just five out and that's and that's why they started Ibaka. and it was five out basketball and let paul george Kawhi, and lou williams run their isolations mm-hmm. i didn't see very much off-ball action for canard uh for lou canard I didn't see too much pick and roll where they went to the dive guy outside of Lou Williams and Zubak running it together. So <laughs> I didn't see much triangle offense, but you know, like it, it'll, it'll be, I mean, it took in, in theory, it makes sense for them to try sure, something. For sure. like that. I yeah. actually liked Kennard on the ball. I thought he was their best passer yes. last night. That was the uh, second thing I had on my list. There is uh, uh, Maples was talking a lot about him on the defensive end. There's a lot of truth to that, but I but I really really do like uh, the, he almost has a Ginobili esque. I don't know it's as you say this about every lefty, but he he was throwing these swing passes across the court, getting into the lane and making simple reads to get open shots for people. I actually thought Kennard made a lot of sense in their offense. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul George was unbelievable. That's the player that you hope he's going to be. That's something that uh, uh, if he plays that well throughout this season, then the Clippers are a legitimate title threat. Um, and then uh, I thought Zubac, once again, he's, he's, the, he's the plus minus hero because every single game he's the guy who the, the Clippers seem to play better. And I think it's time to take a look at Montrez last year and just say maybe it's not so much that he was bad or it was just that Zubac is so good. Well, so good, yeah. But, right. but he was a beast last night, and he and he's 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 legitimately very big and difficult to keep off the offensive mm-hmm. glass. Yep. When he catches the ball around the rim and he's got any sort of momentum going towards the rim, you basically have to wrap him up or hack him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought he brought a lot to the table uh, last night that that made the Clips look uh, pretty dangerous. Anything you uh, any takeaways you had from the Clips last night? Um, I just thought that their isolation play was. They made a a lot of people are like, well, Kuzma can't guard Paul George, uh, and which is true because you know Paul George is supposed to be a superstar tier player uh, or star tier player. But I thought he did a good job trying to stay in front of Paul George. Um, you have to remember, you're asking a six eight guy to run around to to withstand screens from Serge Ibaka and withstand screens from Zubac, and then still be able to close out or recover in time on Paul George. Um, obviously, there are some plays in direct isolation where he got beat by Paul George. Um, but a lot of those shots were just really good contested makes. They're and tough. if somebody makes them, you just you got to tip your hat and just say, hey, congratulations. But I'll take my chances and, and play the field. I don't think 72% a night is going to be sustainable by any degree. Um, and outside of that third quarter stretch where he kind of ran off like eight, eight to 11 points or something like that, that was the difference between the Lakers probably maybe winning this game and, and them losing this game. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to rely on a stretch like that from Paul George on a nightly basis, I don't know if you get that every hmm. single night. And so um, that's really all I saw. Out of, I, their offense didn't look any different than what I saw last season. Um, I think the only difference is because they started Ibaka uh, and Ibaka went like five of seven. Like he like, he seemed like he couldn't miss anything from the perimeter. Um, so it was good because it enabled their, their superstar wings to have nobody sitting at the rim uh, outside of whoever their primary defender was. Hmm. So it's good in that sense, but I'm sure teams will slowly, you know, as they watch more tape on them, we'll figure out exactly what Lou is trying to do. One last note on the Lakers. Uh, uh, I was disappointed in Wesley Matthews on the defensive end. Oh, yeah, yeah. That said, I, it's tough to judge. Defense is a five-man unit that moves in unison. Yep. And, uh, and Wesley Matthews is a ball-pressure guy, which means he has a tendency to give up straight-line drives, which is fine as long as the defense is, is, is you know, cohesive and guys yes. are rotating into the right spots. There's, he had a lot of those isolations, even with Kuzma, there was no backside help. So, yeah. like, these guys knew that if they got him on the hip, they'd draw a foul or, or get a good shot. 
Mm, exactly. And so, but the the one silver lining there is that like Danny Green didn't really bring much as an on-ball defender last year. So there's really nowhere to go but up in that mm-hmm. regard. Uh, really quickly, before I get you out of here. Uh, so uh, obviously I, tr- I bring you on for your Laker expertise, but we are basketball fans. We do watch the other games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really want to talk about the Nets much because the truth of the matter is, is I want to see if they can defend and they haven't really played a great offense yet. They played the, the Celtics without their two best playmakers last year in the preseason. Mm-hmm. And then they played that Warriors team, which is an absolute mess right now. Um, but I do find them intriguing with all the offensive uh, talent they bring to the table. But what I do think is interesting is this Warriors team. So I, I tweeted about this last night, and I think it's really, really uh, interesting uh, uh, because, you know, we get so wrapped up in the barbershop talk surrounding basketball. We talk about, you know, you know, player X is the best because he won or player Y is the best because, you know, he's won this many championships or yeah. the player lost in the second round, so he must suck or whatever it is. We, we get wrapped up in that, that we forget that, you know, yes, basketball is the sport that individuals impact the most, mm-hmm. but it's also a, a team sport. And, yeah. it, and there's there is a there's a rhyme and a reason to everything that the team does on its pathway to winning a game. Yeah. And, and Steph Curry, like LeBron, uh, impacts the game beyond his scoring and the attention that he draws. Steph mm-hmm. with either off the ball or uh, on the ball. And then LeBron as an on the ball guy driving to the basket and kicking the shooters. And I thought it was really interesting to see the Warriors consistently find themselves with guys either open or in four on three situations or three on two situations and just making stupid reads and, yes. and making you taking useless dribbles and taking bad shots and just looking like they had no idea what to do. And I think it's a great example of how important it is to have high IQ players on your team and understand that when you have guys that attract lots of attention, you know, that, that those are the guys that actually are so like, they're kind of just as important to everything else happening on the offense. And I think mm-hmm. we've really overrated or, underrated over the years how important Andre Iguodala and Sean Livingston and Leandro Barbosa and Andrew Bogut and even Draymond Green who wasn't there last night how important those guys were to what Steph Curry does because just like any other great offensive player if you throw multiple bodies on them somebody else has to do something yeah and more just they're putting you in a position to succeed and and I did think it was really interesting to see how you know Steph's gravity you know was markedly less effective last night as a result of the low IQ players around him. Yeah. So I would say my, my main takeaway. So I only watched the first half of that game. Um, but my main takeaway from that game. So I didn't see any of like the Wiseman stuff that happened in the second half. I saw it on my timeline, but I didn't get a chance. To... Garbage time at the very end. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what I saw, this is my main takeaway, at least from the warrior side uh, of this is their young guys specifically, or the new guys, not the young guys, uh, specifically Wiggins and Ubre. I think they had just they, they had a case of the jitters or whatever you want to call it. I think they went to Brooklyn and they realized who they were playing. And um, this may be the first time that those two guys who are going to be important contributors to this team um, are dealing with uh, not a high stakes reward situation, but they're in a high stakes environment because of who they're playing next to. This is the same thing that happens with LeBron. Same thing happens with KD. Harden, all yeah. Right. So there are, there's a difference when you have the expectations of playing in Minnesota or Washington, OKC, and now the expectations of playing for Golden State. Um, they have a very large fan base on Twitter. They're very active. They're posting highlights, lowlights, everything. So I think that stuff hit him with a ton of bricks. Uh, Wiggins, brick, he bricked two wide open threes at the beginning of the game, and then he missed like a point blank layup on a drive. And I was just like, oh, okay, this guy, this guy is not ready for t- this game today. Um, but the one thing that I will take away from, I did take away from this is 
Um, when Steph was on the ball, there were times where he was def- definitely trying to help his teammates kind of get into a rhythm. And the way he was doing that was, you know, attacking the rim, which is not something that you want a 6'2 guy doing over and over again against a tree of players because that could lead to injury and stuff like that. Um, and I'm sure Kerr doesn't want him doing that. I think he's openly said before, he's not James Harden. He's not 6'6", 200 pounds or whatever it is. We can't ask him to keep doing that sort of stuff. But I thought the shot quality that he was getting for his teammates was really good. Absolutely. But, but the fact that they weren't making any of those shots made it is what made it, you know, it, it compiled a really bad situation. So I think that's a good sign for Warriors fans where that whether he's used off the ball or whether he's used on the ball, he can create very, very good shots for his teammates off the equity of just him being a superstar player and being a really smart guy. Um, as a fan, if I was a fan of Warriors fan, I would like them not to have to have him go to the rim as much as he does, only because I don't want to risk him getting hurt. And if he gets hurt, then your season's, you know, it, it's a really tough situation to be in. I want to try and get Draymond back as soon as possible because he can play that point forward role and, and direct guys at the, the way they need to and set Curry up off the ball. Um, the other side of the thing, takeaway I'll take from the Warriors, this will be my last thing, is their defense needs a lot of work. Their guys need to get really, really in tune with how these rotations and stuff are going to work. When they were coming back in transition, I couldn't count how many times I saw Ubre passing off an assignment in transition because he didn't know where his guy was, mm-hmm. and that's the problem. Like, um, we're leaving guys wide open in transition, right? Yeah, and that's why you saw Joe Harris get you know step into wide open threes. You saw Kyrie step into wide open threes. Um, maybe everybody's focused on Durant, but that was sort of the issue that I saw. So. That was my two takeaways, but it's just one game, and I think over time, hopefully, they'll, they'll get that corrected. I think Draymond will make a very, very big difference from a um, this is where you're supposed to be, offensive geometry, all that sort of standpoint. Well, Vinay, thank you so much for your time, man. Uh, we're right at the, the limit here. Um, like I said, I really appreciate you coming on. You're awesome. You're great at what you do, and hopefully, you'll join me a few more times this season. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. Uh, Appreciate everybody taking time to listen to your podcast and listen to me talk about the Lakers and a little bit about other basketball teams. Uh, and I'm excited to be back uh, whenever I do. Awesome, man. Yeah, the Lakers Central is the name of the podcast. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, okay. yeah so I, I co-host the Lakers Central podcast. I have a newsletter you can find in my bio. I'm on. I'm only on Twitter at vkillem, V-K-I-L-L-E-M. Uh, the newsletter is a little more Lakers-centric, but uh, thanks to ESPN pushing Zach Lowe to behind the paywall, I'll probably start writing a little bit more about some of the other teams I like watching. I watch way too much basketball for my health. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, buddy. Have a good rest of your day, and I'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. Bye-bye.